Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Krista Corbello from Even This Way, which is an outreach program for people whose siblings have died from abortion. So welcome, Krista. Thank you for being on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so what started you on this journey of reaching out to siblings who have had people or siblings of people who have died from abortion? What what started you down that road? Well, this is a personal story. Um, I was in the pro-life movement for three and a half years working at a right to life group. And over the time that I was giving pro-life educational presentations, I was really finding my own story of origin. And it wasn't until I was maybe 24 that I found out that I had a sibling who died by abortion. And finding that out was actually one of the hardest things um, that I ever discovered. It was at one of my hardest griefs. And it was pretty indescribable at the time. I didn't have words for it. Um, I wasn't able to process it. It's a kind of like a unique circumstance. So it's also like if you're talking to people about it, it's difficult for other people to understand maybe what's going on. So like most people who go through these kind of traumatic experiences, I guess you could say, um, there's kind of there's kind of a journey of like finding out more about it. And uh, a few years later, I ended up studying um, psychology and getting my master's in it. And my entire capstone project through Divine Mercy University was studying the effect of abortion on the family. And I wanted to go to a Catholic university because I'm Catholic and I wanted to be able to study um really, truly the effect of abortion, because secular kind of psychology and secular universities would argue that abortion doesn't affect anybody, not even the post-abortive woman. So it would be an extreme stretch to say that a sibling would be affected by it, too. But because of my own experience, I knew how um, it made me feel. And so through my own experience, plus my studies, I was able to kind of um, put together uh, a grief intervention program and and meet other siblings all over the world, um, just online. And uh, that's what got me started in the first place. Yeah. Wow. That's, that must be, yeah, such a powerful and moving and hard experience. How is it different than people who find out that they've had siblings that died through miscarriage? Because I feel like that's the obvious thing that people would compare it to. Do Have you ever done any research into that area? Yes, actually, there's um, a really fascinating study that was probably the the core of my research paper, my capstone project. Um, It's Dr. Ney. I think it's from UBC in Canada. And it was around 2010 that he was studying um, the impact of of pregnancy loss, uh, different types of pregnancy loss on surviving siblings is what I call us, um, people whose siblings um, proceeded in death by abortion. And he found there was a significant difference, actually, um, like statistically significant difference between those who had a sibling who died by abortion and those who died by miscarriage. And he kind of illustrates it with uh, an anecdote, which I I usually share whenever I give my presentations. Um, The anecdote goes like this. There's a family on a beachside, cliffside, beautiful sunset, um, family of four, two parents and two kids. And a miscarriage is like one child falls off the cliffside and dies by accident. And the, the surviving child um, is kind of able to cope with life and um, feel sad for their sibling. Of course, there's a sadness and a grief um, and not to negate that at all. Um, however, there's a, a ability to move forward with life because they know that it was an accident. Whereas in the case of abortion, that cliffside family picturesque image is is more like 
the parents kind of whisper behind the kids back, which one should we keep? We can only afford one. And they push one of the children off the cliffside. And so the surviving child can kind of like, even if they didn't witness it, they hear it and they know it something innately. They know that it was not an accident, accident, that it was on purpose. And so there's these feelings of distrust. Um, there can be feelings of, um, yeah, fear um, and survivor's guilt and more difficulty to move. I don't think it's impossible. Dr. Nay kind of says that um, it seems like it's impossible for siblings to move on. I don't I don't believe I can't believe that as a Catholic. Um, but um, yeah, it does seem that it's much harder for sibling survivors of abortion to move forward and find meaningful um, relationships or having meaning in their lives um, just because it's yeah, because of the intentionality that's behind it. Um, so yeah, there is a significant difference. Although when I give my presentations, there's a lot of people who I find that they become more pro-life when they think about it in the terms of miscarriage. Like I know women who've told me I didn't, I wasn't even that pro-life until I had a miscarriage Mm -hmm. and people whose siblings died by miscarriage, they kind of say the same thing like, oh, you talking about your sibling in such, um, concrete ways makes me realize that, oh, I I really did lose a sibling and that make like, I, I feel like I have a loss. Um, of a, someone that I could have known and loved and like someone who would have looked at like me or had hobbies like me. Um, so I don't um, negate that kind of experience or even the like kind of intellectual or emotional connection that people have to to the experience either. Oh, yeah, definitely not at all. It's still a loss of a person. It's just I was just wondering how it, it was different because I think that like you were saying in the secular world or people say abortion doesn't affect anybody, that would be how they'd rationalize it by saying, oh, it's just like a miscarriage if they even go down that road at all. What are some of the ways that you've found that losing a sibling th- from abortion impacts the surviving sibling? Because you said you did your whole research project on this. So what are some things that you found? So firstly, there's like a lot of theoretical models, you know, that I put together and I was uh, actually, just rereading my paper before this podcast, just to jog my memory on it all, because um, I graduated a couple years ago. But uh, one of the interesting ones to me was the survivor's guilt um, and the link to like generational trauma. So, um, what I said earlier about survivor's guilt—this like feeling of, you know, why did I survive? Why didn't my sibling survive? Um, especially in my story. Um, both of both me and my sibling were born of immigrant parents and my mom chose life and her mom uh, or his mom did not choose life. And um, that was a difficult um, thing. But then like coupled with a PT- PTSD like symptom, um, it can't quite be PTSD because oftentimes like when you think of PTSD, it's like one, it's a moment event, right? That you kind of flash back to, that you have dreams about, that there's images or sounds that kind of come to mind regarding this instant. And that's the thing that it, it kind of, it almost grounds the experience. There's like a one time event or, you know, maybe several times events, but there's pictures and there's, you know, sounds. Um, regarding the sibling loss to abortion, Uh, Dr. Nay found that it was more like a gradual process um, because there, you know, for me, I I think I understand what he means by it because um, because I didn't meet my biological father until I was 22 and, you know, later found out that he had an abortion with the woman after my mom, with a woman after my mom. Um, My experience of gradual grief or this kind of 
PTSD like experience wasn't there wasn't a moment. It was like a timeline continuum of like um, things unfolding over time. And a lot of sibling survivors, um, they have this kind of innate knowing uh, they can have dreams, but it, it might not be like dreams that you think of with PTSD where it's like there's a moment you're flashing back to. It's more like these kind of uh, metaphoric dreams. And um, let me see if I can f- remember an example of someone that I've spoken with before. Um, yeah, I know someone who had a dream that uh, they were playing in a sandbox with some children and they just had this feeling like, oh my gosh, these are these are my siblings. And then the sandbox just got like quicksand and like took the other three children in the sandbox. And they kind of went to their mom and they're like, Mom, this is such a crazy dream. I just had this dream um about these about these kids that I knew were my siblings, but they died. And they found out that day when they shared that dream with their mom that their mom had three abortions. And so there's just this weird like innate knowledge sometimes for siblings or another girl that I know, um, she used to count her family members. Like anytime they'd go on trips, she would just count, 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 count. And she like knew in her mind, this is like everyone. Okay. Everyone's here. But she always felt this feeling of um, someone's missing. Someone's missing. She would count everyone to make sure no one was missing. And later on in life, when she found out she had a sibling die by abortion, um, that's when she found out, oh, that's why I always felt like someone was missing. Um, another person I'm thinking of, uh, they said, like their parents also, they were getting divorced when she was five years old or so. And she would, um, she would, she said she would go in the bathroom, turn on the shower and just look in the mirror and cry. She would cry and she would, she would always wonder like, oh, maybe I'm just really sad. Like later in life, she was, you know, thinking about it. Why? Maybe I was sad because of my parents' divorce. But when she found out about her sibling's abortion, she she put it in her mind like, oh, I was a child who was born in a womb of death. Mm-hmm. And it was something innate about her body knew that. And um, she felt that loss. And she said she she actually it made sense to her that her sadness was so profound. Um, and because it wasn't just about the divorce, it was about all these other factors in her mind. So um, to go back to the main point that this like feeling of um, kind of lifelong PTSD more gradual. Um, it's usually the moment of finding out that kind of like clicks into place something for, for people because there's always this kind of like background knowledge somehow. Um, there's also interesting research on like how a family operates after death. Um, this isn't necessarily um, the research is by Dr. Krell um, in the, I want to say 1990s. And uh, so it, it's not so much to do with abortion necessarily as just like the death of a, a child in the family. And there's kind of three responses that he studied. Um, there's like the haunted child and there's the, what is it called? Let me see if I can find my, my research. Um, haunted child, meaning they, they kind of feel like the ghost of their sibling mm. and they feel like uh, they can't really live their own life, if I can remember this correctly, hold on. Haunted, bound, or resurrected. These are kind of the three responses of a family unit. Haunted is um, they may feel guilt. They live in distrust and in fear. They're afraid to ask for clarification. A bound child, so this is, again, the experience of the surviving sibling. They might be overprotected, so 
especially in the realm of abortion, sometimes parents feel like, um, you know, okay, like I, I killed one child by abortion. So I have to like overprotect this next child because I feel like I feel like I don't deserve to have a living child. So like you know, God or something is going to take away this child because I don't deserve this child. Um, so because the child is overprotected, they might feel um, ill-prepared for life. And then the resurrected child is destined to live their own life and the life of their missing sibling. So, okay, actually the research is from 1979 and it's Krell and Rabkin. Um, so I, I found that an interesting thing too for surviving siblings and kind of the role they play in their family. Um, and I think that the research is all, I, this is such a long answer, but I think the research is so interesting because it really um, tunes into the fact that abortion um, often is talked about as a private choice, but in the context of the family, um, it has an effect on on people around them. And And for me, even kind of without and from what I've seen, not just what I've experienced, but from what I've seen from other siblings, that um, it's affecting these uh, siblings without them even knowing about the abortion. And they don't even realize it. Um, so, yeah, that, so that was a really long answer. No, it's fascinating. Feel free to. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And it makes sense. It makes sense when you think about what abortion is. But I think the way abortion is portrayed in today's society, as like you said, a private choice people don't think about the impacts that there's millions of people walking around right now who are having some kind of internal trauma, whether they know it or not from the decisions their mother and father made. And I think that's really, how many, do you know any stats on, I guess the stats would be how many abortions have happened in general. That's how many siblings are going to be walking around. Although I guess some mothers have multiple siblings, but do you know anything about the stats on that? So here's this is uh, this is what I put in my capstone project in the U.S. There were eight hundred thousand eight hundred sixty two thousand three hundred twenty abortions just in 2014. Okay. And fifty nine percent of those abortions were obtained by patients who had had at least one birth already. So just in the year 2014, there were over half a million people who have at least one sibling lost to abortion. So that's just one year. And in the United States, I think you could argue there are millions. Um, I, I think I used that year because they had um, they had the stat of how many have you had births before uh, this abortion. So that's you know I think it's if you're if you're estimating fifty nine percent of abortions um, on people who've already had births, um, that's a pretty high number because I think in the U.S. the abortions were in the millions every year in the nineties. And uh, pretty close to that every year afterwards. So I think we're maybe around 60 million abortions since 1973. I don't know what 59% of that is, but it's, I mean, I, I think it's arguable to say that the, the number is pretty large. Yeah. And that doesn't even include women that go on to have a child later who then, like you said, the womb of death where their mother has already had an abortion and they go on to have a child later. That's going to increase that number and make it more than 59%. That's correct. That's so it's so hard to think about. And it's something that I think gets forgotten about. Have you, do you know of any other pro-lifers who are talking about this topic? Cause I think like I was telling you before the podcast started, I'd never, the uh, sibling connection had never occurred to me before finding your website and your outreach program. So there are, um, there are people, there's a, there's a group called uh, Lumen Ministries, I think. And um, 
I, I think maybe just their digital presence wasn't very high because when I found out about my sibling, probably once a week, I was Googling, I lost my sibling to abortion and found nothing. And I was, you know, I was, I felt like I was uh, grasping for some kind of way to connect to that story. Um, so that's why it's important for me to have a website that shows, you know, I lost my sibling to abortion and really easy to find. Um, and there's, you know, there's a Facebook group that I'm a part of and Lumen, like I said, does that ministry. But even Rachel's Vineyard, like I went to Rachel's Vineyard in the October of the year that I found out about my sibling. And it was the reason I wanted to start this ministry is because going to Rachel's Vineyard was like good, but not good enough. Like it wasn't, it wasn't my experience. I think it was beautiful that I was at my Rachel's Vineyard because there were women in there whose children would have been my age. And so there was something profound about having kind of this in the flesh person whose parent had an abortion saying, Hey, I forgive my dad for having an abortion. Um, and for, you know, kind of taking away an opportunity for me to know another sibling of mine and just them hearing that from a surviving sibling, I think was really profound. So I don't regret going on Rachel's Vineyard. And I think it was very instrumental that and project Rachel, which is, I think, I don't know if I did the 10 weeks before the 10 weeks after of just like one-on-one -on -one talking um, with the people at my respect life office in my home diocese. Um, both of those things were very instrumental in my healing process, even if I didn't see it at the time and it was um, very slow paced. But it, but Rachel's Vineyard is for people who were involved in the abortion decision, whereas, you know, a sibling survivor, there's no way they're involved in that decision. They have no idea, mm -hmm. even if they're born already and their mom's getting an abortion, likely they're very young. So it's not like they're part of that conversation. Um, so we kind of just feel like collateral damage sometimes. and. Um, yeah, that's why I think it's important to talk about it. I think there's there's more groups now talking about it um, than we even realize because yeah, it's just it's just such a random and, and and also I think too like even kind of in what I've experienced, it's a complicated grief. So I do believe there's a lot of siblings who are pro-choice because they don't want to feel like they judge their parents and they don't want to feel like they can they understand what their parents went through. And so they don't, they don't want to judge. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, so I recognize that like, even this way work just because you're working with, um, a sibling doesn't mean they agree with you that abortion is wrong. Um, some of them might, might justify their parents' choices. And, um, you know, it's just hard to understand like where people are, um, intellectually mm -hmm. on the issue. So this is not an intellectual, like, discussion point. This is an experiential one and um, especially through grief and grief intervention. Yeah. Do you find that most siblings find out later in life that they don't? Because I know that for families that I know who have had miscarriages, the kids grew up knowing that there was another sibling because that was part of the parents healing process was to talk about it. But it seems like abortion would probably be kept more of a secret throughout the family and people find out when they're older. Yeah, I think sometimes even just the finding out process can be really, really difficult. It's not just the information, but how they find out, because sometimes they find it from like a talkative aunt or uncle or grandma or something or relative, or they just kind of hear it through the grapevine or they like hear someone talking at Christmas. And so sometimes you just feel like you're like uh, Scooby-Doo, like getting all these little clues and you're trying to put together some some results and you're trying to understand what's going on. Um, so yeah, I do think 
most of the people I know who are sibling survivors did find out when they were when they were older. Um, but like I said, too, like there was something deep down that some of them kind of felt like they always knew. And it just it had a word for it. Like once they found out, it was like, OK, I this is something that I've always known. And now you're telling you're confirming it for me. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. There's something just very strange about this all, uh, eternal knowing um, and then finding out in your 20s or something sometimes. Yeah. Is there something healing about finding out that there's a reason for this feeling of emptiness or loss that you've been experiencing your whole life? Yeah, I, I do find, especially when you like connect with people, like when I, um, when I started on my journey, there was someone who found out they had um, not one, but multiple siblings who died by abortion. And uh, I would say he was like a year or less than a year ahead of me kind of in that journey. Like we had both found out within the year of each other and he was doing Rachel's Vineyard and Project Rachel but he was doing it with his mom who had abortions and so they, their healing process was very much together um, and I remember him telling me like he named his sibling he would write letters to his sibling he felt his sibling's presence and like prayerful intercession and at the time I just remember thinking that is weird. That is so crazy. What are you talking about? You named your sibling. And I just remember thinking, this is so weird. This is not even real. Um, and it wasn't until my own Rachel's vineyard. Um, I had this pretty powerful prayer experience where they invited us to close our eyes and envision the baby who died by abortion. And I envisioned my sibling just in a field, like in all white and running around playful, sunny, um, you know, blue skies and it's a Christian retreat. So like with Jesus and it was just this very like um, this moment of like Jesus being with the little children. And it was it was really powerful for me to see that I named my sibling. And um, yeah, and I, at that retreat, too, one thing that I did was I had this song that I've written. I wrote for my grandma when she was dying. She was in ICU when she was dying. Mm -hmm. And she got to hear like a really underdeveloped version of it, but it was it was a a song of loss and grief and um and it was a song of love, like it was my declaration of love to her, and um, I played it at her funeral, and that was like a really um yeah powerful experience just in my just in my grief process as an artist and as a songwriter. It was something that you know that's a that's a way that I grieve. That's that's a way that I. Um, I'm able to process what I'm going through. Like the research was a big part of it for me. But um, this song, um, I go back to when when there's loss in my life. And so I, I just remember going back to it, um, going on that Rachel's Vineyard retreat, bringing my guitar and like finding a, a, a quiet spot in the field or whatever and just kind of singing it to my sibling and and then I sang it. They did a memorial service at the end of the retreat and I sang it there too. And I just remember, like, I remember it was very hard for me to sing that song, but, um, but yeah, oftentimes like just this joint grief. Um, but there's like a, to me, there's a meaningfulness of, um, like not just sitting there not just not grieving it just with people, but like making something out of it. And, um, that's how you can kind of reinvest in life again. And I think that's like an important part of the grief process is um, is being able to like move forward with it in some way. And yeah, it's it's just a path of and it's a, you know, a painful path. Mine lasted for 
yeah, over a year, I was very, I was like depressed. And um, my friends were saying like, you know, I can't remember the last time you laughed. Like, and I, I wasn't really fully invested in life. It was difficult to go to outings and socials. And I'm, I'm a big social butterfly kind of person and to not be like that for so long. And then, um, yeah, there's just many parts of the grieving process and the unfolding and the unraveling of that. Grief is so real. And like you were saying, it's so like having things like art and songs and or poems or some way to work through the emotions is so incredibly important. So do you run healing retreats for siblings? Is that what your ministry does right now? What is what do you how do you actually connect with siblings and help them through this process? I haven't done a retreat yeah. yet. It's um yeah, it's not I've not had like that many people at once. It's usually just someone finds the website. We email back and forth. Sometimes we talk on the phone. Um, it's been a lot of just kind of like soft ministry. I mean, I've developed this like two weekend retreat um, just based on different kinds of grief interventions from my research, but I've never implemented it in the way that I wrote kind of the retreat. Um, it, it's just really been a slow process of people hearing my story. Sometimes people like friends and family know my story and then they meet someone from work or someone from the pro-life movement or at the National Rights Life Convention like oftentimes it's in those settings that like the people who do know about what I do, like I make connections through, through other people and, and I'm just able to talk with them. Sometimes people, I, there's been people who email me and they say they, they've been holding in their, the story of their sibling for 40 years and never felt like they could um, kind of unfold or, or feel like, sad about it they were made to feel guilty for for feeling sad about it and then they come across like one of my blog posts or something mm -hmm. and they say like this is the first time that I've ever heard anyone um like saying the story that is my story and 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 having the space for it so most of the time I feel like people just need the space to share their story mm -hmm. um which is why I have an ability that people can do that on my on my website on eventhiswayorg um, and then at the beginning, like right before I finished my master's program, I, I put together a little panel of siblings and I was presenting my research and then asking the siblings to kind of um, give their input if that was something they experienced also. And I mean, sometimes, you know, it's research, so they can say, yes, I relate to that. No, I don't relate to that, but it, you know, mm -hmm. but it's like this for me. And so I think having, both of those elements in, in the, and it's, it's out there on my website. And I like, sometimes I just send it to people who they tell me about their story also. Um, and so I, I just share that with them, my research, share with them the stories of others and just having the knowledge that something like this exists is enough for people. So yeah, hopefully it'll grow into having some sort of intervention program with like multiple siblings at once, but it's kind of usually like the speed thing. Like some people need the one-on-one -on -one time and some people need, yeah, just need to read something else or yeah, know that they have a place to, to land with their story. Do you have any advice for people who are listening, who realize that they have a sibling who died from abortion or who know someone who's struggling with that? Do you have any advice for helping walk through someone through that process or for someone who's walking through that now? So I actually have um, the first steps in healing uh, brochure that um, I made on my website. It's on the homepage, just at the bottom. And you can go to 
where it says like, I want the first steps in healing and it'll email it to you immediately. Um, on that pamphlet, I, I, I actually list a few items like, like getting invested in something. Um, I do believe there's a, there's a grief process with creating, um, for me, it was songwriting. And for one of my friends, it was painting. Um, I know someone who does jewelry making. And there's just a lot of different ways that you can kind of create and make meaning um, in a way that you enjoy that you don't have to be good at. I don't I think that's the thing. A lot of people think, well, you're a musician, Chris, of course, it's going to be songwriting. No, like, um, you know, my friend who was painting, she was like, not that good of a painter but she specifically went to those stores where you get like one of those like clay things and she painted she they they kind of help you sometimes they have like already pre-made the clay things and you paint it there or whatever and then they you know whatever bake it or whatever and, and make them the color set I'm not really sure how it works but she was doing a lot of those at that time um so I think just doing some something with your hands um is I think there's something kind of beautiful about that. Um, I think writing is a really important thing to do. Journaling. Um, for me, looking at a feelings wheel. Have you ever seen the feelings wheel? I think, so. <laughs> I think it's important to, to name our feelings. We kind of have power over them when we name them. Um, and looking at a feelings wheel can kind of help us um, discuss and name those complicated feelings and and knowing too that when we're looking at those feelings and we're feeling those feelings um they can change day to day a lot of times with grief in general in general with grief people are like well i should feel like this because of xyz or i should stop feeling like this by xyz and they give themselves timelines timelines and shoulds and coulds and uh, would'ves and things like that. And I, I don't think uh, we should place that kind of pressure on ourselves, especially with a very complicated grief, like the loss of a sibling to abortion. There's really a lot of layers. And I think for me, it was, I mean, really like three to five years of, of unpacking it, finding out all the information, and then going through a whole master's program and researching it, being able to name certain um, parts of my experience from the research and the literature, but it was really that coupled with like meaningful friendship, not just with people who have had the same experience, although I was very fortunate to have other people who were sibling survivors, um, but it, it doesn't have to be that. There was so many of my friends just in the pro-life movement who were able to like hold space for Every, even the day, I remember that the day the, that I found out about my sibling, um, I was flying home from the West Coast. I was visiting one of my parents and I, m I met with my biological father. And I, when I flew home, my friend who picked me up was my my partner from Louisiana Right to Life. Um, and her friendship, she was the one on, by my side, too, when I was uh, at the memorial service for my sibling playing my grief song um, there. And her friendship was just like, uh, I mean, a pivotal part of my healing process too, just that um, every day was different and still being able to receive me um, as I was. And like I said, though, especially the people who, who have siblings who died by abortion. And when you can kind of, you can reinvest in life and something that you love, like, and it doesn't even have to be art or whatever, just like moving your body, like a sport or something like doing those things. And even when you feel numb or angry or sad or all of them at once, um, it's, it's good to just 
continue, try to continue on with life uh, in meaningful relationships. Um, I will say too, like sometimes you ask for advice for sibling survivors, but sometimes people ask me for advice on telling your kids. Um, Cause I feel like in the future, this there could be kind of like a mission statement shift and like I'll be halfway serving siblings, but also halfway serving parents. And um, cause I know uh, it's just hard. It's a hard thing to like tell the truth about to your children. I, I do think that it's better for a child to hear it from their parent than from another relative or a friend. Mm-hmm. And it's especially hard when they hear it through the grapevine or, like overhearing a conversation like those, those seem like really complicated um, situations and painful um, for those who I'm thinking about who I know um, because I found out from my, from my parent. And um, I mean, I was pretty gutsy and I kind of just asked about it um, or asked a a different question. And anyway, um, so I found out from my, my parent because I was, uh, really curious about certain parts of their story that I didn't know yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's important for parents to talk about those experiences. I don't know how to, how to bring up that conversation. I don't know how that works out. It's got to be on, you know, using prudence and, and what the parent thinks is best and age appropriate, of course. But ultimately I do think it's best for um, parents to tell their own children about that, about their experiences when they're ready and hopefully um, in a loving way. Do you think it's better that the kids know younger rather than later because there's less time for them to find out through somebody else? Or do you think that really is a judgment call based Mm -hmm. on the parents? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a judgment call. I know like some people who were just involved in the pro-life movement. And so they would write, you know, like logic papers or whatever talks like uh, persuasive presentations or something from in school like assigned by the school on abortion topics so they would you know present it to their parents or they would you know um, practice or their parents would help them write it and stuff like that and that's when the conversation kind of naturally happened I feel like that's that could be like a middle school or even high school thing um, where kids are starting to do that um, starting to question those kind of beliefs and things like that Um, so I think if those topics come up kind of, I guess, naturally, that's probably a, a better end than, you know, okay, you're 13 now. I've got to tell you all these things. Yeah. <laughs> so, had, um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's like a better or worse. I think it's, it's totally situational. Yeah. We had Melissa Odin on the podcast at one point, um, who was an abortion oh, survivor great. herself. And she was saying that she had pulled all of the abortion survivors and every single one of them said they wish they'd found out differently. And obviously that's a different scenario, but I think the same holds true for any child who is finding out how abortion impacts their life. They like find making sure that they find out from the parents, find out in a way that's honest and that's going to be looking out for their feelings and not just heard from aunt and uncle's conversation at Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. <laughs> um, brought up with compassion yeah. and prudence and being very respectful of how it's going to impact the child. So you were talking about art. And yeah, absolutely. Beauty and songwriting. And I saw on your website that you believe that beauty is really important in reaching out to people. Can you talk a little bit about how beauty is important in building a culture of life? It's kind of tangentially related to this, but I think it does um, relate to how we process emotions and how we can reach people who may not agree with us intellectually, but who still are struggling with how abortion and this culture has impacted their lives. Yeah, I think there's like a 
there's like a transcendent quality of beauty, right? Like out of the other ones, beauty, truth, goodness, and unity, or, you know, like beauty is so universal and it can speak to speak across age groups and, and religions and, um, other demographics, I guess. But I know for me, I'm, I'm an artist, so I know it's something that kind of like I easily relate to, but even not in a like expression or self-expression way, um, like just good graphics. Like I think my, <laughs> my first, uh, encounter with what, um, my friend Alex and I coined as the term beautility, like effective beauty, um, is, is like through literature that we were handing out on the sidewalk when we would do sidewalk counseling, um, a beautiful image and, and a cohesive yet concise kind of pamphlet or, or like a, a trifold thing um, that you're given to someone who is uh, abortion vulnerable can, can, I mean, it really is a matter of life and death. Like, um, do I think that a, a white piece of paper with black text and times new Roman could be effective. Sure. I do think that it could be effective. I'm, I'm not saying that it's totally a hundred percent ineffective, but we are a visual people for the most, I mean, we see like over 3000 advertisements every single day. There's, I mean, we're just, uh, it's a barrage of, of things that we see all of the time. So uh, yeah, I guess to me, like beauty is important because it, it, it has the ability to share a message in a universal way. And so when I'm thinking of someone like who's abortion vulnerable on the sidewalk, I want to give them as much information as possible and let them know that what um, the resources that I want to offer them are, are helpful. And um, uh, an easy way to do that is for it to be pretty. Um, because if it's not, if it's not beautiful, um, they could throw it away. The next trash can they, they stand by. Um, so just, I mean, that's also kind of a marketing perspective too. That's my first degree is in PR. So I just think there is a, an element of beauty um, that is just in the spreading of the message. But I think too, like as a pro-life activist and as someone who does this kind of outreach and ministry to sibling survivors, like there is a beauty to the way that you live and the way that you share the story. It's not just about the literature or the website or your social media. There's a beauty to the way that you share this message. And if it's not um, a message of compassion, it has to be a message of truth. Like there can be, um, you know, kind of there's a spectrum of like truth and uh, love. Right. And you don't want to have one without the other. Like there has to be kind of a cohesive and an um, integrated way of communicating a very truthful message that abortion is is wrong, um, but it has to be done in, in a very compassionate way because for a lot of people, myself included, um, a, abortion has affected the, the people's lives. Okay, and it's and oftentimes it's very traumatic and painful. You have no idea what people have experienced with abortion, and it, it's it's permeated our society in a very profound way. It's permeated the family in a in a profound way. And if we're talking about the, the truth that um, abortion takes the human life and we're using it like a weapon, if we're using the truth um, like a weapon to prove people wrong, um, it's not a very winsome way to talk about the issue. I think, um, like I said, there's the beauty element of the things that we're handing out and the things that, that share our message, but there's a beauty in conversation too. There's a beauty in uh, the way we live our lives that show that we 
want to protect life, that we want to help families and and young children and after they're born and, you know, all stages of life. I think the way that you treat is is in itself a beauty and and a witness to what pro-life is. And you have to embody it um, kind of like really, truly incarnationally. Like you have to embody a pro-life message in a beautiful way that is attractive um, so that it can can it sp- spread and it can perpetuate. Um, so I think there's many elements of what I mean by that on my website with beauty. Um, yeah. So like I would say the three things that when I think of beauty in what I've in the ministry that I do and just in, as a pro-life activist, it's like beauty in grief processing, like the art element of, of doing grief, um, beauty in literature and digital presence and sharing the message, but most of all, the beauty of your own life and, and truly seeing and having a sense of wonder for the people um, that you serve. Um, for me, sibling survivors, ultimately. Um, but, you know, you serve pregnant and parenting women and families, and you have to find a sense of wonder in, in that um, and find a sense of wonder in life that is worthy of being protected and defended. Um, and, and that is, it catches fire. It just is so, it's so, uh, it can illuminate and it can educate and it can activate. I think beauty too really touches people's emotions. And if abortion was just an intellectual argument, it never would have become a thing. Like if you can point out life begins at conception and it's all intellectual, people will understand that. But the reason that abortion's taken root is because people are struggling with hard situations. They're in crisis pregnancies. They're going through something where their emotions in a sense are overriding what they might know to be true, or they don't want to admit that they know to be true. And Mm -hmm. so it's so important as pro-lifers not to just attack on the intellectual side, even though it is important to educate people because a lot of times it's changing hearts. It's changing hearts and minds, but we need to make sure that we're Mm -hmm. also using beauty as a way to touch people's hearts and reach people. And for people that have gone through something traumatic, being able to help them work through that in a way that's very respectful and compassionate of their emotions, but at the same time, not denying truth. Yeah, I like what you said. Like it, it, it touches on the emotional element of it, which of course it is, and we're human, so we all have emotions. Uh, although some people try to deny that. Um, there, Rehumanize International does a an annual or maybe biannual now um, pro life arts contest. So I think it's it's really cool the way that they um, kind of invite especially artists to share pro-life messages through their art. So there's, you know, several different categories and you can see um, probably on their create encounter website. Maybe it's, I don't know if it's createencounter.com or rehumanize.com slash create encounter or something like that, but they have a lot of beautiful art and it's, it's really just a way to testify and to share the message um, in a new way. Sometimes like one of my friends, um, Claire, she's a paint, she's all kind of artist, but she painted um, my friend when she was pregnant, my friend Alex, who I mentioned earlier, when she was pregnant, she just kind of like painted this beautiful painting on her, on her, uh, on her belly. And she kind of just looked like a, I don't know, ethereal, like pregnant fairy or something, but it was, it was very beautiful. It was one of my favorite ones uh, of that year. And um, yeah, I think it's good to see um, pro-life art and art that affirms life. Yeah. And I think it's just such a part of that culture of life is using art to reach people and really illuminate the world. Like art beauty is such 
so important. That's something that's why I wanted to bring it up because it's something I'm so passionate about of just using beauty and really being able to work through hard things through something beautiful, through that literature or art or every every type of art, <laughs> songwriting. So yeah, is there anything else you'd like to Yep, short stories and poems. Yeah, I think they do short stories and poems too. So I would I would check out uh check out Create Encounter from Rehumanize International. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today before we wrap up the episode? No, I think I think it was pretty comprehensive. You had a lot of good questions for me. Thank Thanks, you. Colleen. Thank you for being on and thank you for sharing your story and everything that you've been doing. It's so, so important. And I'll link your website down in the description so people can check that out and share it with people that they might know who are struggling with this. So thank you. Thank you again, Colleen. And to all of our listeners, please like, subscribe, leave us a five-star review, um, check out the ebooks that we're going to put on the end screen and keep on living the culture of life. God bless. 